We've come a long way, farmers. This is We're All Ears, the Golden Harvest podcast miniseries coming to you throughout Harvest 2021. I'm Kara Hart. Thanks for joining us for the final episode of the year. We've discussed a lot in this mini-series. In the previous episode, we explored the carbon market and how farmers fit into it all. But in these past couple weeks, we've also examined weather extremes, disease management, the corn and soybean market, seed production, crop planning for 2022, and so much more. For this final episode, we're gonna start out by talking harvest wrap-up and post-harvest prep for the 2022 corn and soybean growing season. And when we said we're all ears, we meant it. Stay tuned until the end to hear answers from some of our listeners submitted questions. So to make sure our listeners are putting their best foot forward as we wrap up Harvest 2021 and march on to the 2022 growing season, I'm joined today by Syngenta Seeds Head of Agronomy, Andy Higginstaller, and Justin Welch, Head of Digital Ag for Syngenta Seeds. Hi, Andy and Justin. As harvest comes to a close, we are excited now to look ahead to 2022. Can you two tell us a little bit more about you and your experience in the agriculture industry? Hey, Kara. Hey, it's so great to be here today. Um, I, as you said, am the head of agronomy at Syngenta Seeds. In that role, I work with our commercial agronomy team and our technical agronomy teams. Uh, We're in a really cool and unique position within the organization where we're within the sales team, but we are the primary point of contact with our R&D organization. And we have the, the fun and sometimes challenging responsibility of working between those two teams and our marketing teams. I uh, grew up in a small farm in Pennsylvania. I uh, spent most of my career in the seed industry with a couple different companies, uh, primarily in sales management and agronomy roles. I also uh, spent a lot of years at Iowa State University where I went to graduate school and studied agronomy. Well, Andy, it's good to get to know you a little bit. Justin, tell us a little bit more about you. Howdy. Glad to be here. Uh, glad to be with Andy and yourself. My name is Justin Welch. I'm the head of digital ag for Syngenta Seeds here in the U.S. And I've been with the company a few years, but I've got uh, 25 years of precision ag, uh, nerd work in my background. I started in ag retail for about 15 years and then ten, did 10 years with a, a, another uh, organization in the seeds business before coming to Syngenta uh, as part of our my role and my team's role here is we work really hard to make sure that we're building software that really helps farmers uh, drive higher revenue potential and help them uh, manage their operations. We also develop software internally for our internal folks to make sure that when they're working with farmers, they can provide them value to help make sure our products are working in the way that they were designed. What a very interesting job. And I understand, Justin, you and Andy uh, at times work really closely together. We definitely do. I mean, Andy and I, um, you know, our backgrounds have crossed multiple times. If you look back through our history, we've done a lot of similar things in our background. Andy uh, definitely could have represented digital on this call uh, instead of myself and done a great job. And uh, it's good to have him with me here to, to do this digital and agronomy update with you. Let's go ahead and get started here. We started this podcast as corn and soybean harvest. We're just starting in October. And now most of the regions of the Corn Belt are done with harvest or pretty close to finishing up. Andy, can you start by sharing some of the things that we have learned this harvest and then transition uh, from this growing season to the next? And what made that different? 
Yeah, for sure. I can think of kind of three big ticket items. Obviously, where you are matters, right? It's different in North Dakota than it is in Illinois, where I live. But for sure, I would say a common theme that I see across the regions that my team covers is many farmers feel like their corn and soybean yields were higher than they thought they could be uh, based on the year they had. Um, a number of farmers have told me in the last month or two that you know, we always say that rain makes grain and that, you know, rain in August into early September makes the soybean crop. And I can't tell you how many farmers, Kara, or how many situations we've come across uh, within Golden Harvest where the, the farmer said, well, I didn't get any rain in August, but I still grew 85 bushel soybeans, right? So we've had a tremendous crop given the stresses that we've been through this year, both corn and soybeans, whether it was areas of central Illinois where we had way too much rain or areas of North Dakota where we had effectively none uh, we've had really good production given the, a lot of the stresses we went through. The second thing I would say, and I bet we'll talk more about this, but in both crops, um, a year with a lot of interesting pest dynamics, particularly in corn, uh, uh, another record corn rootworm year in the upper Midwest, particularly Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, bit in Northern Illinois. Uh, we saw that trend set itself up in 2020, and I'm afraid to say we're going to see more of it again next year. And then, of course, the story of the year in corn, right, tar spot. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about that more later, but uh, some, some, big, some big moves there. And, and probably talked about a little bit less, but something that's really on the move is we continue to watch southern rust move further and further north. And um, we can, again, maybe talk about that more later. But in, in the corn side, definitely some interesting, uh, some pest dynamics. And of course, in the soybean side, we continue to see a lot of dynamism, if you will, in, in soybean trait uh, platforms for herbicides and the decisions that growers are looking at there. We've seen that market swing in a big way in 2021. Um, and then, you know, maybe to finally to cap it off, all that leading into, you know, a really unprecedented run up in uh, input prices. Uh, farmers are looking at good commodity prices that seem to be strengthening here, but still uh, looking at planning for 2022 being more complicated, I think, than we've seen in a long time. And I bet we'll talk more about that. Well, Andy, you mentioned something that I know farmers in, in our coverage area, that northern tier of the Corn Belt, uh, farmers up here, I think, for the most part, like you say, pleasantly surprised with what they're seeing when it comes to yield. And we know that there's so much yield data can tell us about this season and also help us prepare for the next season. Uh, Andy, what should farmers be looking for in their yield data uh, what? How do they use that as a, a roadmap or the the path forward for next year? Yeah, one of my favorite topics, Karen. One where Justin can weigh in too. I mean, obviously, maybe just as a background point, right? We have seen over the last 12, 15 years, uh, particularly over the last five or six, a point where every farmer is experiencing an understanding yield on their farm in real time as they're harvesting, right? And I mean, that's just a lot different than what it was when I started my career. And so, how farmers are thinking about data the real time, the spatial aspect of it um, has just intensified. And, and that's a really good thing. Farmers get to understand what's happening, happening on their farm with a level of quanti quantitativeness, and if that's a word, and, and, uh, and real time that we haven't had before. But but I think the thing that I would recommend hasn't actually changed, it, changed much in the last 25 years is that data is really good. And we're not obviously going to select a hybrid that didn't perform well on our farm. But I always encourage farmers to think about that unless they're farming across multiple states or something like that, that make sure you're looking at data beyond your farm too. And we know that environments vary from year to year. And I think it's really important as we're making those decisions 
um, that we're not only looking at the data on our farm. You know, one of the things as growing up as a farmer and now working in the role I do that I've always reflected on is at this time of year, uh, more so than I think most farmers realize, what we're doing at a seed company right now is not that different than what they're doing, right? My team and I are very busy right now looking at data from all of the pre-commercial trials, making the decisions of what's the portfolio we're going to sell next year. And we always have to fight against what's called recency bias, right? Where a particular product performed really well this year, but we have a broader set of data over more years and environments. We always have to go back to that. That's the same exact thing that's playing out for every farmer right now that's trying to make decisions. And again, my, my advice would be start with what's on your farm and look for data and performance data that comes from other similar places uh, before you make those final decisions on what the portfolio is going to be on your farm next year. I was just going to say, I mean, Andy's comments make perfect sense about that recency bias. I mean, the best hybrids in history lose 25% of the time, one out of every four times. What people would call staple products in the industry will have a, a bad day or, or a bad year. And making sure that they're looking at the long-term consequences of uh, making that short-term decision off of one year or one field or one example. And being able to use what Andy said is pull all their data together to make a better decision for longer-term decisions. Justin, what role uh, can digital ag technology play in evaluating field data? Uh, it's going to play a bigger role in the future, I think. I mean, we've been collecting yield data for 25 years, and I still don't think we perfected how farmers can use that to really make better decisions uh, in their operation or, or to change management practices. And, and I think that as, as we move forward, there's, there's been a lot of work done in this space over the last five years around this idea that we have information, now what should we do with it? And, and having planting data and yield data and now bringing environmental conditions together, it's really going to help farmers uh, put that data to use that they've been collecting for many, many years. The other thing that we're seeing is this predictiveness in season. So if you think about in August, having a better understanding of what is that combine going to see when I actually roll through the field as giving that prelude to harvest, I think is something that's been newer that's going to help uh, farmers prepare even before they get the data from the combine to do analytics. So there's going to be some new things come in that space that's going to allow farmers to make those decisions quicker than maybe they would have in the past. How quick can farmers make decisions based off of that information, Justin, typically? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that by the time we get to August, if we're doing you know, our job in the future of, of knowing what the season has brought us, you talked about you know, in, your, in your neck of the woods, you didn't get a lot of rain at a different part of the year. If we're not already signaling that there's going to be, this could be a, an impediment for a certain variety or a certain hybrid, or we're seeing these conditions, we should be able to help bring that information in advance of harvest. And a lot of that is, you know, something, you know, we'll probably hit on a little bit, which is real-time agronomy. And how do we use that inside of software that allow for farmers to make simpler decisions um, before they typically would have done that? And Justin, you work in a really quickly uh, changing industry what are the most exciting digital ag innovations you've noticed in the last year? And what uh, what could some of those innovations mean for corn and soybean farmers? Yeah, I think um, what I've seen, uh, and maybe if I go back even a little more than just the last year, what we've kind of seen is a little bit of reset on what this term digital ag actually means. And what's really exciting for me and getting to sit next to Andy Hagenstaller is this idea that agronomy and digital are going to find their way to, to uh, synergize together and start using uh, these agronomy practices with real humans to make better decisions using software. And it's not about just creating software that is just magical, that's going to tell you everything you need to know. 
It's about being able to get back to real agronomy, but using digital assets in order to deploy that to farmers in real time. So you've got this human element, this AI element and agronomy elements. They're going to come together uh, to really make some cool digital tools uh, for the in-season opportunities. We are also seeing automation become a, a bigger player. You know, auto steer has been around 20 years, but the, uh, the driverless uh, grain cart, uh, I think, caught a lot of eyes over the last couple of years. Thinking about how does us going from a light bar 20 years ago to doing auto steer 10 years ago to now having driverless vehicles. In agriculture, those are things that I think are going to become really intriguing as we think about the labor shortage in some different parts of the United States. Those technologies will probably tend to get adopted quicker. Those are kind of the two things that, that really, to me, are really exciting coming out of the last couple of years. Yeah, the driverless uh, driverless cart is is really interesting to me. Uh, the how advanced that is. Do you know how how widely used that is yet, Justin? It's still prototyping. Uh, you'll see it a lot on Twitter or or YouTube videos of it. But as far as uh, being in full commercial, it's still on its way um, to finding that adoption level. Well, the constant innovation in the digital ag space also makes me think of the continuous innovation in the Syngenta Seeds portfolio. Andy, what can you share about the 2022 Golden Harvest corn and soybean portfolio to help our listeners get excited for the next growing season? Yeah, sure. I mean, literally, as we talk, Kara, uh, the teams uh, in both crops, corn and soy, are getting ready to to make those decisions here over the next uh, five to seven days uh, over you know what what we're going to bring in terms of new products for next year and uh, because we haven't finished all that yet I'll I'll stop short of getting too specific about about that but here's what I'll say um, it was about five years ago that Syngenta started making some really significant investments in our seeds business and in our R&D shop in particular. And if you look what's happened over the last five years, you can really see that we're on the cusp of, of really transforming um, our, our seeds business and our portfolio. If you look at corn over the last couple of years, we have really moved forward with our 110 and 115 day portfolio that, that we have. And we're starting to harvest those investments, no pun intended. <clears throat> and then soybeans. I mean, what, what an exciting, you know, maybe a little bit scary at times, but in soybeans, I think that, you know, we've seen this market shift to enlist E3 soybeans in a big way this year. I don't think we're going to see that change. And um, I think, for a lot of farmers, they've had a lot of interest in E3, uh, but had a perception that maybe the E3 soybeans were all the same, that the agronomics and yield potential on those varieties wasn't there. And I can say uh, uh, quite confidently that that that's that may have been the case a year or so ago. Uh, but if we look at the portfolio of soybeans uh, in Golden Harvest right now in, in both E3 and ExtendFlex soybeans, um, we have varieties uh, that have all of the yield potential, all the agronomics, uh, they're differentiated in the industry. And so for those farmers who were making a decision to be in a particular soybean platform because they felt like they needed to, um, because that was the only place they would get yield or agronomic traits like IDC or phytophthora or, or white mold, um, that, that's over, right? I mean, we're at a point now and and um, our portfolio is particularly strong and just a really, from an innovation standpoint, um, you know, usually we get more excited about technology and corn. Um, I would say right now that it's an exciting time for technology and soy. And uh, I think that for those growers that had some interest in E3, the portfolio's there, that there's no reason not to fully pursue that if that's what you want to do. 
Thanks for sharing some of the new products in the Golden Harvest portfolio, Andy. Now let's switch gears a little bit. We've had so many great conversations throughout this podcast series with various ag industry experts, and now we're delighted to bring in our listeners a little more closely to answer questions they've submitted on social media. Let's get right to it here. For our first question, one listener wants to know, what was the biggest challenge corn and soybean farmers faced this year? Andy, would you like to kick things off here? Yeah, that's a that's a hard question because it's pretty it's pretty big, right? The largest challenge that almost all farmers face every year is the weather, right? That sounds kind of like cliche to say that, but I mean it's the truth. And you know, in different parts of the country, uh, face different weather challenges. Um, and you know, whether it was in Minnesota and North Dakota, Kara, and your neck of the woods being really dry, or you know, down more toward the Central Corn Belt where where I live in Eastern Corn Belt, where it was really wet in a lot of areas, that continues to be a big challenge. But you know, just to go back to the soybean thing quickly, I think if there's a generality for many farmers, not all, is we've not had a bifurcated. Uh, you know, herbicide platform soybean market before, you know, we're a couple years into that now. And as we saw the enlist E3 soybeans uh, market expand pretty significantly this year, you know, we're, we're at a, I don't want to say 50, 50, but it's a pretty mixed market on average out there. And so I think there's a lot of concern from a lot of different farmers, uh, whether they're using dicamba or their neighbors using it, uh, I think that's caused a lot of challenges is there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think that uncertainty will continue um, in, at least for a little while here. And so I think if they're growing soybeans, I think most farmers can share that challenge um, in some way, shape or form. And then again, finally, even though it wasn't for this crop, as we're leaving this cropping year and heading to the next, man, what a what a challenging situation we have here as farmers are thinking about their crop rotation that they want to move into for next year. Justin was saying something to me about this before we started started the, the podcast, but I mean, maybe he wants to speak to it a little bit more, but I think there's a lot of uncertainty for farmers of, you know, given where different prices are at and where those prices and availability might go, whether it's corn, uh, if fertility costs or availability for corn production, or whether it's availability of crop protection chemicals for soybeans. I think there's a lot of uncertainty out there and a lot of things that farmers are going to need to work through over the next couple months. I mean, that idea about budgeting is a big deal. And, uh, you know, going to corner soybeans isn't just as easy as making that decision. It's, can I find the inputs that I need in, in order to grow my corn? Uh, can I find the herbicides that I need to spray my beans? You know, there's lots of things that are going to go into those decisions. And it'll be emotional because most farmers get in a rotation and those rotations are kind of what they are. And, you know, this year they may have to make some tough choices on, on how they're going to follow that through. What recommendations do you all have for 2022 planning when it comes to inputs? So, I, you know, I'll be frank. I don't have magic advice here. I'll, I'll say one thing, though, is, you know, as I look and, and I'm no expert on farm economics, to be clear, Kara, but as I look at the at the situation right now, if if you're comfortable with your where you've been on your break, even with corn uh, in the past, um, in most cases, your corn is still probably as we sit here today, this may change two days after we uh, release this podcast, but I think in most of the core corn producing area, corn is still going to be the the winner um, on ROI potential at the farm level. Now, again, there's so much variability in, the, the, in what farmers have locked in their anhydrous, uh, you know, at or different input costs that the mileage can vary. Uh, but I, I do think that wide swings in going to soybeans where you would have been in corn last year. I just don't see that right now. Yeah, there's a, you know, the, the idea that if you're in corn country, 
you really like to grow corn. Like it's emotionally tied to you. Um, I grew up in the Eastern Corn Belt and we didn't mind growing soybeans and we could grow pretty good soybeans and having that flexibility of that crop, I think will be interesting to see where the different regions of the U.S. shake out for this year. I think that's an interesting point to bring up because where I live in the North, we have a little bit more diversity. Corn and soybeans are a big piece of the puzzle up here, but there are other crops that come into play too. Crop rotation moving forward could be a very interesting thing to follow. Yeah. And you're right, Karen, your market, whether it's sugar beets, wheat, there's a lot even more complexity that those pros are dealing with than, you know, down, you know, in here in the I states where Justin and I find ourselves today. Moving back to corn, um, Andy, the next listener wants to know corn rootworm, of course, a big issue for many this year. And thinking ahead to 2022, should they plan to plant traded hybrids in addition to using an insecticide? What, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are it depends on your pressure level. So in the ideal situation, which we're not always in, and we can talk about what what we do when we're not in the ideal situation, but in the ideal situation, we have some measurement or some idea of what the pressure level that we faced this year was. The most common way that we get that information is with those little yellow sticky traps. We see some companies coming forward now with soil tests that can give us an indication of what the larval pressure that was put in the field is. In an ideal situation, we have some understanding of that pressure and we we base our management practices off of that. And so if we're in a really high pressure environment, then there are oftentimes going to be advantages, Kara, to stacking your traits with your soil implied insecticide. But, you know, just because one field on a farm had high pressure this year, it doesn't always mean that another field did. And so to just prophylactically apply insecticide to the entire farm because you had high pressure in some fields is probably not the best economic decision. The way that we look at it and my team is know your do, do what you can to know your pressure if you're able to do that. If you can't do it quantitatively, then at least try to have some idea of the differences you saw in adults between your fields. And in those medium to low pressure fields, use a pyramidal rootworm trait stack. So at Golden Harvest, that would be our AgriSure Duracade uh, traded corn. That would be what we would recommend for those moderate to lower pressure fields in rootworm country. And then when we get to those fields that we know that there was really high pressure um, or that we believe there was really high pressure, those are the cases where we would look to, to combine um, an ins- a soil applied insecticide uh, with traits in, in those really high pressure environments. And, you know, the question farmers will ask me sometimes about that is, well, why am I buying your traits if you're telling me I have to use an insecticide? And, and the truth of the matter is, those traits have been revolutionary for what they've allowed us to do in corn production. Those traits, despite the fact that we have documented resistance for some of them, those traits are still effective, highly effective. But Keep in mind that when those larvae are taking those bites out of those corn roots, if there's thousands of those larvae per acre, they have to eat the root and then some time has to go by before they die. And if the initial pressure is really, really high, you can't kill them fast enough with the protein that's that's being expressed in the roots. And that's where soil applied insecticide can help control that early pressure and then let the trait carry it through the rest of the, that growing season. And so, again, I do not recommend that as like a general practice. But when our pressure is high, bringing those two practices together is going to be the best recommendation for success. Justin, where does digital fall into play when we evaluate fields that may have corn rootworm damage from this year? Well, for us, it would start with uh, our seed selector process of making sure that farmers have the right portfolio of products uh, when they're buying from us. And so 
as we think about this idea of field-by-field placement of hybrids or varieties, traits are an absolute story that go into that mix because there may be certain fields that we're going to choose only from rootworm traded products like Agrisher Duracade, or there may be other fields where we are in complete rotation where maybe we're okay to um, just run an Agrisher Viptera type product. And so that idea of how traits play into seed selection and making that portfolio as a whole, that's something that we've uh, worked really hard on over the last few years because as Andy said, this is a this isn't something that's going away anytime soon. It's going to we're going to continue to have to make some of these tough decisions on traits, no traits, traits plus other uh, management practices for time to come. So we've got another listener question here. This one about tar spot, uh, tar spot being seen in this listener's cornfield, actually multiple cornfields. They say this year, should they assume? that tar spot will also be in their field next season? And if so, how should they prepare for it? Uh, and what are the recommendations for managing? This sounds like an Andy question. Yeah, it's uh, it's the question du jour this fall, right? For sure. And so I wish I could say you have it in field number one this year, you have a high risk to have it there next year or vice versa. Unfortunately, I can't. I'd take everybody back to 2017, at least if you were in the kind of central eastern Corn Belt. In 2017, virtually none of us knew anything about the tar spot complex, right? We, we were all kind of uh, naive. We didn't know it existed. It was a big deal in 2017. What happened in 2018, Justin? How much tar spot did we have in northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, eastern Iowa in 2018? Yeah, it depended on geographies. But, I mean, it comes and goes, right? Is that where you're headed? Yeah. Yeah, that's my point, right? That like we saw it get pretty bad in 2017, probably not as bad as it was this year. And then it just kind of was there, care at a low level for the last several years. And now it blew up again. And so uh, we talk about that disease triangle, right? We need to have a susceptible host. We need to have a pathogen. And that third leg of the triangle, like everything else in farming, becomes the, the, the big deal, the environment, right? And so what we know is that when we have these really high moisture nighttime conditions, and, and that this can lead to the infection of these spores. And so while definitely the presence of the spores is on the residue in this year's field, you could have a field that was in soybeans this year that you could potentially have tar spot in next year. You could have a field that was in corn this year and you had a lot of pressure. And if the environment's not right in that local area next year, you might not see it be a big problem. The one thing to keep in mind with tar spot is when it comes in determines everything. If it comes in later in August, it tends to be a pretty superficial disease that's really just, you see it, but it's not causing a lot of problems in terms of your yield potential or your bottom line. But when we get into situations where those environmental conditions bring it in in July, then we set ourselves up to have a big problem. So here's my biggest piece of advice on this. Three items. Number one, hybrids vary considerably. There's ton of variability within and across genetic providers, seed companies in the tolerance of their genetics to tar spot. So if you're worried about it for next year, um, and most producers should have at least some concern, at least make sure that some of the genetics on your farm are are well scored for tar spot, that they have tolerance. Number two, um, and most farmers don't want to hear this, but if it comes in early and heavy, it's going to require two fungicide applications to bring it under control. Um, we we know that it takes two to three weeks from the time that the spores arrive for the inf- infection to fully set in. And before we actually see the spores, 
the problem started. And so this issue of how do we get in front of it with fungicides is challenging. There are a couple different um, folks out there that have some tools that can help us predict whether the environment is setting itself up for tar spot. The one I tend to look at is from the University of Wisconsin, an app called Tar Spotter. It's just one example, though, of where it can tell us like, hey, you're having environmental conditions that are going to set you up for tar spot. And that's when we need to probably think about accelerating when we would apply a fungicide. Tar spot this year all of a sudden did bloom back up. But I went back and looked and uh, when Andy was mentioning that a few years ago it got pretty big. It's probably the top video I've had on Twitter since I've started like 18,000 views of uh, tar spot rolling in and just decimating some corn. And people were intrigued then. And I reposted it this year because we saw this resurgence. And it was really interesting that farmers are still learning about this at times. And maybe we've, we just got to keep promoting it. And I know Andy's team is all over making sure that there's material out there to help farmers make those decisions and help uh, uh, make sure that it's not going to be something that takes them down next year. That's a really good point, Justin. And I was actually going to ask Andy a similar uh, question to that because there are areas I know of the the Corn Belt that aren't as familiar with tar spot. What do you even look for? And what should you be aware of just in case the conditions are, are just right for it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, just real quickly in terms of like where tar spot is, we saw a pretty major range expansion before this year the idea that there was tar spot west of Des Moines was unheard of, or even in De- as far west as Des Moines, we now had confirmed tar spot in eastern Nebraska, right? So the range, like, like what happens with a lot of new pests when they enter an area is they have kind of a latent period. They first show up um, and then their range kind of quietly expands before they're everywhere. So um, I would say that everybody who's growing corn, at least in the, in the central, you know, corn belt uh, should be prepared that it's a reality. And like I said before, we get these really distinct lesions that as the name of the pathogen would, or the the disease would imply, they look like little specks of tar, um, but they oftentimes are not visible to the eye for several weeks before the infection has begun. And that's why, again, I would encourage folks who are really wanting to be ahead of this. The two, I think, biggest things you can do are look at the tar spot ratings on the hybrid you're planting. And it doesn't mean that every hybrid on your farm needs to be rated as best in class for tar spot, but probably bring some diversity in. At Golden Harvest, we have, we have some really strong hybrids um, against tar spot, every, everywhere from the 100 day, the 95 day clear up to the 110, 115 day. And then number two, um, take some time to learn about, um, and I, I don't want to go into all of it right here. We've published some really good stuff in Golden Harvest in the last several weeks, but understanding those environmental conditions, it's really those nighttime temperatures and dew levels and moisture leaf wetness conditions that create the environment um, and start to understand what those environmental conditions are and be willing um, if we have everything set up in a bad way, uh, that it's going to set in in July, be prepared to make a fungicide application earlier than you might otherwise have been planning to do. And Andy, with that quick turnaround time, is there an opportunity that maybe a second fungicide application could almost be called for? For sure. Yeah, I, I think that where, where we're seeing the recommendations, not just from Golden Harvest, not even just from Syngenta, but from universities, other providers, other crop protection businesses, is that in, if tar spots, if the environment is going to set itself up for tar spot early, that we're going to be in a two fungicide uh, system. I, I've heard people talk about three, but uh, I think that if we really have it come in early and heavy, it's going to be a, a double dose, Justin. All right, guys, we have another and perhaps our final listener question of this episode. 
I think this is probably more Andy targeted too, but Justin, feel free to add in as needed here. Which hybrids and varieties of corn and soybeans were the top performers this harvest? And I know there are quite a few probably to pick from, but maybe just name the, the top two or three that you can think of. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll focus on corn, Eric, because that's where my head's at right here today and the data that I've been pouring over with the team and we've been looking at. And, you know, just just maybe a couple. Um, I mentioned, you know, our growing strength in that 110 day, but there's three products and I won't spend a ton of time on each one. But between our uh, G10D21, G10L16 and G11V76, between those 310 day or 111 um, just three outstanding products for us. They're going to fit in different environments and different, we're going to place them a little bit differently. In fact, between that 10D and 10L, we're going to treat them almost 100% opposite. But those three hybrids have just had, and it's, it's not the first year for each of them either. They're, they're going into their second or third year. These are top volume products, widely available in Golden Harvest, that everywhere from Nebraska to Illinois and in between within that 110-day market, um, have just been outstanding for us. And then I guess the other thing I'll, I'll point out quickly is if we look to that fuller season maturity, we launched um, two years ago and it's now, and it's, it's, it's just finishing its first really big year. Um, and I know Justin's a big fan of this hybrid as well, but G 15 J 91 has just been an outstanding 115 day hybrid. Again, widely adapted, probably be the second, if not first largest volume product that we forecast for next year. I, I don't know. We'll see how it ends up, but that's just been a tremendous product. And we just launched uh, last year, which so we're seeing the first real data come in for it in a commercial setting is G16Q82 and that full season maturity, particularly East, that product's been really strong for us. In that 100 day and earlier, we've had some real stalwart products that have had outstanding performance for us this year as well. GO2K39, GO3R40 in that 100 and early 100 day market. We can put a whole portfolio around all those products, but those I just went through have just been uh, outstanding performance and are leading the way with our teams as we're out there helping farmers build their plans in corn for next year. Is there anything else to add, um, maybe from a soybean perspective? We have the leading enlist E3 soybean portfolio in the marketplace. I mean, that's just a fact with the data. Um, and it's been really exciting to see uh, how we've been able to work with farmers in that portfolio. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot uh, for us to juggle with my team. We have two different, two totally different portfolios with the Extend Flex soybeans portfolio and the E3 portfolio. We turned both of those portfolios over. Kara, we were, we had 30 some new products last year. So we're just kind of settling into these new portfolios and sorting our way through them. We'll make some tweaks to them with the products that we advance here in the next couple of weeks for next year. But I can just say in both the trade platforms, Extend Flex Soybeans and E3, uh, we, we've easily across the whole portfolio got a couple bushels yield potential advantage over key competitors. Um, and then as we dig into certain maturity groups, um, it can be significantly uh, greater than that. So a lot of excitement around those portfolios. I uh, just have corn on my brain here this afternoon. Justin, is there anything you want to add to this? Yeah. I mean, he hit 10D, 15J. If you ask me, those have been my two just for that 110, 115 market, which I know better. But the cool thing is two 110s, one 111. Why would you need all three of those? And really, it comes down to management and it comes down to different environments where they tend to succeed uh, one over the other. And, and really, our digital tools, that's what makes it cool for me is having this, this uh, variety of products for farmers to choose from. But we get to help make sure we're tailoring that to their management practices and the environment where they're going to place it. And so, you know, a lot of good products. But I, 
My answer would be let Seed Selector help us choose which products you need to put on your farm. Andy, Justin, as we wrap up this final episode of the We're All Ears podcast mini series, do you have any final parting words or pieces of advice to share with our listeners? Justin, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think that as you look into the next year, you know, making those right crop rotations, making sure that your management is set up right. Um, if you need help in, in some of those seed making decisions on how uh, your seed decision helps you make management decisions, those are things that I think are going to be a big focus for us over the next year. And my team is dedicated to helping farmers drive revenue on their operations. And that's what we look forward to for the 22 season. Yeah, well said, Justin. I think maybe I'll just make two closing points, Kara. Number one, um, I, I think you can probably tell from our discussion here today that we're uh, not just Justin and I, but Golden Harvest is dead serious about being a, a really competitive seed company and a real partner for our seed advisors and our customers. But at the same time, uh, we really we want to we want to have a good time. You know, we want to have uh, we, we want to have a positive experience with our growers. And you know, this podcast to me has been an example of something different for us, something cool to do, and you know, a way to tell our story and get feedback on what we're doing. And so, I just look forward to uh, you know to the next season. We'll work through all of us. will work through our various challenges and you know opportunities to have connections like what we're doing here and the the opportunity to do more of that in the future. Thanks, Andy and Justin, for getting us excited and prepared for the 2022 corn and soybean season. This, for the last time in 2021, has been Golden Harvest, We're All Ears. We hope this season's episodes brought you valuable insights to help your farm and your role in the agriculture industry. Subscribe to We're All Ears on your preferred podcast streaming platform so you have all the episodes at the tips of your fingers. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And remember, just like you're listening, we're listening too. So join the conversation and interact with us at Golden Harvest on Facebook and Twitter or Golden Harvest Seeds on Instagram. And tell us what you thought of this podcast mini-series and what more you'd like to hear about. On behalf of Golden Harvest Seeds and myself, thank you for listening to We're All Ears and thank you for everything you do for agriculture. Wishing you all the best in 2022. Always read and follow label and bag tag instructions. Enlist E3 Soybean Technology is jointly developed with Dow AgroSciences and MS Technologies, LLC. Enlist E3 is a trademark of Dow AgroSciences, LLC.